Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover gruesome and disturbing crimes. I'm your host, Chris. In our last episode, we ended on Jane's 24th birthday, when she was violently beaten by Fenny. And as bad as things are now, they are about to get worse. Check out Episode 1, Part 1, so you can get caught up. In May, Jane reported that Fenny beat her with a wooden pole. This pole is the type of pole used in a closet to hang your clothes on, a rod or dowel. This is a big, thick pole a wooden pole that he had so lovingly decorated with the words beat that ass stick and kept it in their room. Sometimes Jane would try to hide it from him when he got angry because she didn't want him to use it on her again. He would beat her as hard as he possibly could. On one particular incident, a male friend of Fenny's walked into their room. Fenny doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't care that anyone sees him and his friend does absolutely nothing to stop him. His friend sees what is going on and simply backs out of the room and shuts the door. This isn't the first time one of Fenny's friends sees what is going on and does nothing. This behavior only reinforces to Jane that nobody is going to help her or save her. Then he takes her to another room in the house and he beats her some more. Once again, Jane is seriously worried that she's going to die. She's thinking in her mind, okay, if my arms are broken, my legs are broken, I can still survive. But if he hits me in the head, I'm going to die. The injuries from this beating are so bad, she had put her hands up to protect herself and her fingers got smashed. She thought she had broken fingers because they were so swollen. Miraculously, they weren't. Fenny, on the other hand, made sure that stick was always handy and ready to use. It was a great tool for him to continue to exercise his power and control over Jane. How she is still able to walk upright boggles my mind. I don't understand how a person withstands this type of physical damage without ending up in the hospital or dead. Fenny's violent behavior is escalating. This is the first incident where he decided to use a machete and a blowtorch on Jane. Fenny somehow learned of a conversation that Jane had with another female, and to say he did not approve would be an understatement. They were inside their dirt road house when Fenny just walked up to Jane and punched her so violently in the head that he knocked her out. Then he dragged her unconscious body into their bedroom. When she started to regain consciousness, she could hear him saying, Bitch, get up. Fenny then brought the other woman into the bedroom as well. He sat this woman and Jane down, back to back, and started to interrogate them about specific details of the conversation they had with each other. He punished Jane every time her account differed in any way from the other woman, or every time she said, I don't know. He held the gun to her head and threatened to kill her if they did not give him more information. He was so angry and demanded that Jane tell him everything. This is when he decided to torture her into telling him what he wanted to hear, so he broke out his blowtorch. This is a big propane blowtorch, and yes, he used it to burn her. As he was telling her that she better come up with something, he was also yelling at the other woman, stating that she better come up with something else too, or I'm going to kill this bitch, as he put it. Something being the full recount of their conversation to his satisfaction. Fenny demanded that Jane lift up her foot, which she did, and then he used the blowtorch to burn the bottom of her foot. 
Naturally, she flinched and pulled her foot away, a who wouldn't. He yelled at her to be still, and then he held the torch to her ankle and pushed down on her foot with the machete at the same time. During this chaotic struggle, he struck her ankle with a machete so hard he cut it open. Her foot started bleeding profusely and Fenny freaked out. He yelled at Jane to go put her bleeding foot in the bathtub. During the aftermath of this attack, he is berating her again for making him do this to her. He refused to let her go to the hospital and get help. Instead, he took her phone and keys so she couldn't leave. Due to the lack of medical attention, her burn, which was quite severe, had become infected. Only then was she finally permitted to go to the hospital for treatment. In fact, Fenny burned Jane's foot and ankle so severely that the scarring was still obvious when her injuries and scars were photographed six months later. Ernest Cornegay and his girlfriend at the time, Kelly, moved into the dirt road house on Silver Street with Fenny and Jane sometime in late July or early August. Jane had met Kelly before that, but she wasn't allowed to talk to her until after she moved into the dirt road house because Kelly, quote, wasn't a hoe and wasn't on drugs, end quote. Now that she was living under the same roof as Jane, Kelly was there for a lot of the assaults Jane was subjected to and can corroborate many of Jane's claims of violence. Jane and Kelly began talking a lot and soon became friends. Because Kelly didn't use drugs, Jane thought of her Quote, thinking was the most normal of the people she came into contact with, end quote. Kelly would often try and convince Jane that she should leave, but obviously that did not happen. In July, Fenny had planned another big road trip to California. He took Jane, his friend Johnson, and Johnson's girlfriend. They went on their road trip in a Dodge Charger, which belonged to the woman Fenny was living with when he and Jane first got together. The car was in this woman's name, but Fenny made Jane pay her $500 a month for him to use it. At the time of the trip, Jane had earned about $800, and they planned to use that money for the road trip. Once again, before they got very far, Fenny realized he had spent too much of the money and was concerned about not having enough for the trip. By the time they got to Portland, they were almost broke. Jane was forced to post ads on Backpage.com in Oregon and went on one unsuccessful call, but they still managed to make it to San Francisco. Once they arrived in San Francisco, she began posting ads again. She wasn't getting any responses to the ads, so Fenny told her she would have to walk the track, meaning get out there on the street. A call eventually came in, so she was spared having to hit the streets. Somehow, they eventually made their way to Compton, which is in Southern California in Los Angeles County. During this entire road trip, Fenny made Jane perform oral sex on him at rest stops and became very angry because he couldn't ejaculate due to the amount of drugs he was using. He kept blaming her for this inability and punching her in anger. As if being blamed for the shortage of funds lack of responses to the ads, and the threat of being forced out onto the street wasn't bad enough. When I think of a road trip, I think of so many other things. Cranking up the tunes, singing along in the car, and stopping for a scenic lookout, to name a few. Being forced to orally, sexually service someone up and down the I-5 corridor while being beaten and threatened is not my idea of a fun road trip. At one point, he even told her to leave, although he never would have allowed it. Too bad she couldn't. Eventually, they did run out of money. They pulled into a Walmart parking lot, and once again, Fenny began blaming Jane because she was not making any money. Fenny called his ex-girlfriend, the owner of the Charger, and his mom, asking them to send money. Surprisingly, they did both send money, and this allowed them to continue their trip. Jane had texted her mother, too, asking for money and explaining that she was with Fenny, out of state, and broke. 
But after the others had sent money, Jane didn't need her mother's money any longer. The immediate crisis was over, and she had let her phone battery go dead. Presumably, her mom was frantic with worry, since she knew Jane was out of state, with Fenny, had no money, and she couldn't reach Jane by phone. On their way back to Washington, Fenny was driving and Jane was playing music on his phone since hers was dead. His mom kept calling, but he didn't answer. Finally, at a rest stop in Oregon, Fenny listened to his mom's voicemails telling him it was an emergency. Jane's mom had called Fenny's mom out of desperation and fear for her daughter. So he called his mom and asked her to tell him what Jane had told her mom. He put the phone on speaker and Fenny's mom told them that Jane's mom was going to call the police and tell them that he had kidnapped her if he did not bring her home now. Upon hearing this, Fenny dropped his phone and started punching her all over. He takes out a knife and he stabs her in the back with such force. He hit Jane's nose so hard it started bleeding and would not stop and she was in agonizing pain. Of course, he wouldn't give her a chance to explain anything or to call her mother. Jane has learned that his friends aren't going to do anything to help either. What does Johnson tell her in the car? I wish I could do something, but I can't because he'll just beat you more. They got back in the car and kept on driving. When they finally got back to the dirt road house, Jane was in excruciating pain and struggling to breathe. She waited for Fenny to fall asleep, snuck out, and drove herself to Harrison Hospital, which is right down the street. The reason for her pain and trouble breathing was the fact that she had not only been stabbed, but the knife had broken one of her ribs. The hospital gave her some pain medication, pamphlets on domestic violence, and sent her home. She threw out the pamphlets because she didn't want Fenny to see them. She survived the road trip from hell. She did not file a police report. In late August, Jane actually got up her courage to try and leave Fenny. She left the dirt road house and went to stay with a friend. Fenny knew he had to lure her back, so while she was gone, he sent her text messages threatening to commit suicide and then wouldn't answer his phone. Jane was extremely susceptible to his manipulations and was actually concerned he might kill himself. Out of fear for his life, she returned to the house and snuck into their bedroom to make sure he was all right. From what she could see, he looked to be alive but sleeping, so she tried to sneak out. Unfortunately, he woke up before she could make her escape. He jumped out of bed, grabbed her, and began yelling, Bitch! I have been waiting for this all day. He pinned her down and beat her with his belt again. He beat her so hard, he knocked her out. She had welts all over her body, a black eye, and was unable to sit without pain for a long time. Fenny then started going through her phone and discovered that she had sent a message to the father of one of her children. Jane knew that he didn't want her to have any contact with other men, especially her baby daddy. She knew she was taking a big risk by texting him, but she thought she'd managed to delete the texts. As a result, Benny is ruthless as he punishes her. He started by forcing Jane to give him oral and anal sex. She tells him no. She doesn't want to do this, but he doesn't care. In fact, he decides to take a video. While he was raping her, he made her recite her baby daddy's name and recorded the entire ordeal on video. Just because you don't see her getting beat on the video doesn't mean this isn't rape, which is what the defense argued. The beatings have already occurred. She's already been subdued. The defense actually argued that this was a consensual act of sex. But Jane's already learned that she has no choice and no control over the situation. Fenny yells, Say his name. Say his name. Say it. 
On the video, you can clearly see she is distressed. Her glasses are all busted up, and she says her baby daddy's name as instructed. Fenny shouts again, Is this what you guys wanted? Some sex? Fenny says. Then he sent that violently brutal and sadistic video to her baby daddy that night. His intent was to humiliate and degrade her and demonstrate his absolute control over her. Mission accomplished. Throughout the remainder of the evening, he continued to rape her and take additional videos. The prosecutor argued to the jury, quote, And I want you to challenge yourself. I know that was a hard video to watch. I want you to challenge your own opinions on what rape looks like. When we think about rape, when we think maybe about what we would do in that situation and how we would respond if we didn't want that contact, we probably think about the days in rape. We probably think about the time where Jane learned that she could not fight, that she didn't have a choice. And she fought there. She fought. In this case, she said no too. She fought here. She didn't fight on the videos. You didn't hear her say no, but you still saw the corroboration to her testimony. After he had already had her subdued, after he had already beaten her, then she is forced, she is humiliated, she is required to say her baby daddy's name, and then later on, hours later, there is the first of two videos. And if you look at it, the last video is hours later. She is required again to say, I'll listen to daddy. I'll listen to daddy. End quote. It's the beginning of September now, and on this particular day, Jane is feeling pretty depressed. It's her son's first day of school in the first grade. As much as she would love to see her little boy off to his first day of school, she can't. In the past, this is something that she's been able to do and enjoy, but she knows her life is a mess right now and she can't be around her kids. Being so upset and depressed, she just wants to spend a little time by herself. That seems understandable. She tells Fenny that she's going to take a quick trip to Dairy Queen and get some food. Fenny thinks that she's going to leave him again. He calls her cell phone and tells her, just meet me at Dairy Queen and get me some food. Then you can be by yourself. He gets his friend and roommate, Cornegate, to give him a ride. They race to the Dairy Queen. As their car pulls into the Dairy Queen parking lot, Fenny quickly jumps out and gets into Jane's car. He growls at her, saying, Oh, bitch, you think you're going to fucking leave? And snatched the food from her. And then he said, Bitch, give me your phone. Give me your phone. He took her phone from her and told her to drive to the fucking house now. On the drive back to the house, he is hitting her repeatedly in the car. He sees on her phone that she's been talking to another woman, a woman who might actually be a friend. How dare she attempt to make friends with anyone? Then Fenny invites this woman over. She is a witness to the humiliation of Jane by Fenny. Once they reached the house, he continued the beating. And to demonstrate to her how mad he really is, he dumps a bottle of urine over her head. This is a big plastic milk jug that he has been storing up his urine in. Why he has been storing up his urine in this big plastic container when he has a perfectly good bathroom available is unclear. He poured his urine on her knowing it was really going to sting and burn because of all her cuts and other injuries. After he does this, he tells her to get out of the room because she smells like piss. He makes her go out into the garage and forces her to sit in a very tiny closet. He threatens her with his gun and tells her not to move or make a noise. While she is sitting in this closet, beaten and covered in piss, he offers his final insult to Jane for this perceived offense. Then he goes upstairs 
and begins having loud sex with this other woman who was supposed to be a friend of Jane's. They are so loud that Jane can hear. You might think she wouldn't care, but Jane still loves Fenny, or she thinks she does. So yes, this hurts her feelings. In the first part of October, Jane actually did leave Fenny. This time, while she was gone, she spent time with another man. But she still maintained communication with Fenny, and once again, when he begged her to return to him, she did. When she got home, Fenny demanded her phone, which of course she handed to him, as she had done so many times in the past. She thought she had deleted all the texts between herself and the other man, but she missed a few. He saw these texts and discovered that Jane had not only been texting with another man, but had kissed him as well. Fenny was enraged. He just exploded and blitzed her body all over with punches, which was typical for him, but he also hit her with the machete again. He is hitting her with the flat side of the blade, but it still leaves cuts on her body. Apparently, this violent and brutal beating was not enough, so he decided to burn her face with a hot meth pipe, leaving a permanent scar. This is a meth pipe that has been heated with a pen torch. Yikes. I had to look up a pen torch to see what it was. They come in various sizes, but on average, the ones I looked at were about seven inches long, resembled the shape of an actual pen, and are fueled with butane. Then he directed Jane to call this man and arrange to meet with him. Before they left the house to go to the agreed-upon meeting place, Fenny threw Jane's phone against the wall, smashing it. Then he sprayed her with pepper spray, which is horrible by itself, but it would also aggravate her many existing injuries. Fenny kept his gun in full view during this entire assault, which lasted about an hour. Then he forced her into her car and continued to assault her while they drove to meet this man. Fenny had his sidekick, Cornegay, in the car with him again. The man did not show up, so Fenny resumed his assault on Jane. He squirted a bottle of Rain-X all over her head, which burned because of the pepper spray, burns, and punches she had received. Yes, Rain-X, I had to look that up too. It's a type of car wax, so I'm guessing it was handy and just happened to be in the car. Fenny dropped Cornegay off at some other location and drove back to the dirt road house. Fenny kept his gun in his hand or in his lap for the entire incident, making sure, as usual, that it was in plain sight for Jane to see. When they got back to the house, Fenny called the man back and asked why he was talking to his bitch. The man hung up on him. Fenny was so infuriated by this, he told Jane she was going to get his beating too. He started bombarding Jane with punches again and forced her to strip. He felt that she was not undressing fast enough, so he ripped her clothes off. He forced her to sit on an ottoman and watch as he lit a pen torch and heated it up. Watching this and knowing he was going to burn her with it would have been extreme torture. Naked and sitting on this ottoman, Fenny forced Jane to spread her legs. He then proceeded to burn her vagina and genitals in ten different places with a hot pen torch, causing severe blistering. The doctor testified, confirming that there were ten circular burn marks on her vaginal area. He also used the pen torch to burn her all over her legs. After Fenny had finished burning Jane, he allowed her to get dressed, but continued to strike her with the machete. He cut her toe, he cut her arms, cutting her legs and hands when she tried to deflect the blows. The worst wound she received was the last time Fenny struck her, and this caused Jane to bleed out profusely. They were unable to control the bleeding, so Fenny had his faithful friend, Cornegay, and his girlfriend, Kelly, take Jane down the street to Harrison Hospital. Fenny told Kelly and Jane to say that the injury was caused by a go-kart accident. 
They did as they were told, but the hospital staff wasn't buying it and seriously recommended surgery. Jane was too scared of what Fenny might do to her if she stayed in the hospital, so she refused the surgery. So they stopped the bleeding and stitched up some of her cuts and the one major wound on her knee. She left the hospital with Cornegay and Kelly and went back to the dirt road house. When Jane returned from the hospital, Fenny was still angry with her, despite the fact that she was beaten, burned, had her knee cut to the bone with a machete, and in serious need of medical attention. Fenny is furious over the fact that Jane will not be able to work. He no longer has an income source. He climbs on top of her, on the bed, with the firearm pressed against her head. He tells her, You knew this would happen if you did this. You knew I would do this. And he puts that firearm to her head, and he tells her he is going to kill her, and then he pulls the trigger. The gun went off, but luckily did not hit her, and the bullet went through the wall into the bathroom floor. Jane miraculously survived this night, but the wound from the machete cut was not healing. Considering it was cut open down to the bone and required surgery, this is not surprising. Ultimately, she did have to return to the hospital for surgery to repair the wound to her knee. The relationship between Kelly and Cornegay was an abusive one as well. Beatings, manipulation, and threats to her life were a common everyday occurrence for Kelly as well. Even though Kelly didn't do drugs or engage in prostitution, Cornegay forced her to give him money on a regular basis to support his drug use. A single dose of meth is about 20 bucks. One dose can last anywhere between 6 and 24 hours depending on tolerance. So Kelly's job at Safeway could definitely help to support Cornegay's drug habit. By now, they had been living in the dirt road house for a few months, along with Jane and Fenny. It was late summer, and Kelly happened to be in the car with Fenny, Cornegay, and Jane. Fenny must have been tweaking, and he became super paranoid. He accused Kelly of being the police, and he demanded that everyone give him their phones. They go to a church parking lot, the Church of Latter-day Saints on Nels Nelson Road, which is right up the street from the dirt roadhouse. Kelly refused to give hers up and denies having it on her until Cornegay betrays her and forces her to turn over her phone. So she gave her phone to Fenny, but when she tries to get out of the car, Fenny held a gun to her head and told her, you're not going anywhere. They drove back to the house where Fenny eventually decided Kelly was not in the police after all and returned her phone. The story of Kelly and Cornegay could be its own episode, but for now, it's enough to say they were instrumental in the arrest of Fenny. It was around the 16th or 17th of October when Fenny found out that his good buddy Cornegay had stolen some property from their drug dealer. He was furious and worried that his drug dealer would blame him for Cornegay's actions. That same day, Cornegay's girlfriend was at home at the dirt road house, but Cornegay wasn't there. Fenny was itching for a confrontation with Cornegay. He ordered Kelly not to leave the house until he had a chance to talk with Cornegay, but Kelly didn't listen to him. She snuck out of the house and went off to work while Fenny slept. She had recently started working at the Safeway on Buckland Hill Road. Jane was at home at this time, too, and testified that she was supposed to stop Kelly from leaving while Fenny slept, but she fell asleep, too. Kelly was afraid of Fenny, and rightly so. She wanted to move out of the dirt road house, especially after the recent death threats and confiscation of the phones and knowing that Fenny was so irate with Cornegay. Because she was so afraid of him, she didn't return to the dirt road house to get her stuff for about a week. Eventually, she had to go back because she really needed to collect her clothes and belongings. On her first trip back, she was able to get in and get out and get some of her stuff without running into him. Crisis averted. The second time she returned to the house to pick up some of her remaining items, she found herself alone with Fenny in the house. Fenny had his firearm on him, and he found Kelly in her bedroom gathering up her stuff. 
he dragged her out of her bedroom and into his, where he forced her to undress. After the drug dealer had accused Cornegay of stealing from him, Cornegay never again returned to the dirt road house. He knew Fenny was furious with him. Because Cornegay would not come back to the house, Fenny wasn't able to exact his revenge personally. He was so pissed at Cornegay, he decided he was going to use Kelly to get back at him instead. So Fenny used his gun to subdue and restrain Kelly, and then he forcefully sexually assaulted her. The end is in sight. On November 16, 2016, officers arrested Cornegay and Kelly in the Buckland Hill Safeway parking lot. The police report is as follows. On 11-16-2016, at approximately 13.40 hours, I was working in my capacity as a Special Investigations Unit Detective with the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office in Silverdale, Kitsap County, Washington. I observed a male, later identified as Cornegay, driving a gray Honda Civic with two different license plates on it as it traveled through the parking lot of the Safeway at 2890 Northwest Buckland Hill Road. I also observed Cornegay pick up a passenger, later identified as Kelly. Cornegay parked the vehicle in the Safeway parking lot and they walked away. Cornegay was arrested after the rear license plate was determined to be stolen. Cornegay had a felony warrant for his arrest and the car was determined to be stolen. Post Miranda, Cornegay admitted he passed off a gun to Kelly prior to law enforcement contact. Kelly turned over a loaded 357 revolver at Cornegay's urging. Deputy T. Graham made the Smith & Wesson revolver safe. It was photographed and placed into the KSCO evidence. After being arrested, Kelly was interviewed by the police and she was brave enough to tell them about the violence she had been subjected to by Fenny. She also told them of the violence she witnessed on a daily basis being inflicted on Jane by Fenny. As a side note, Cornegay had his own trial and was sentenced to life in prison with no parole under the Three Strikes Law. Based in part on Kelly's statement upon her arrest, police officers executed a search warrant for the Dirt Road House a week later on November 22, 2016. As part of the warrant-based search, Fenny and Jane are arrested together in the middle of the night after being observed by police leaving the Dirt Road House and getting into their car and driving away. Police followed them and arrested them before they got very far. During their search, police officers also retrieved a sawed-off shotgun, a semi-automatic handgun, a machete, drugs, shotgun shells, ammunition, drug paraphernalia, and small torches. With Fenny in custody, his ability to physically harm Jane, Kelly, and others is taken away from him. But he can still try to manipulate others into helping him, and he does try. Jane and his mother are at the top of his list. Jane was facing a number of drug charges of her own, but getting arrested got her away from Fenny's direct control. She now has a chance to heal physically, get into drug rehab, and receive counseling. Defense attorney Craig Kibbe stated the following. They want you to believe that he is some kind of monster, but he is not. He is a man, a man with some feelings, a man with some personal problems, and drug habits, but this, what you have been told, is not the narrative you should believe in this case. This is a case where the alleged victim in this case, primary the victim, Jane, she lived in the world. She lived in a world where she, her eyes were wide open about what she was doing. She entered into a romantic relationship with Mr. Finney, and she willingly knowingly began a life of prostitution. And it continued where, not. In addition to that, she lived in a world where she had access to a vehicle. 
She left and went as she pleased. She had access to being able to contact family, doctors, law enforcement if she needed, but she didn't do those things. We know that Mr. Fenny styles himself as a person with tattoos, a person who lives a street life, a person who makes a decision to put true Northwest pimp on his body. So that is something, I guess, he is, I guess aspires to. He wants to be that. But what Mr. Fenny is, or at least was back then, was really just a poor person living with a bunch of roommates in a dirty house in East Bremerton. That is where he found himself. Defense stated, he is full of bluster. He is not everything he purports to be. Defense tries to discredit Jane by stating that after her arrest, she goes into treatment still thinking of Jeremy as her boyfriend. She comes out thinking of changing her worldview about things, thinking of him now as her trafficker and her being an unwilling victim in this whole game. You are going to hear that Mr. Fenny had almost nothing to do with her prostitution, that she made ads, that she went on calls, that she answered her own phone calls, that Mr. Fenny was not aware of where she went on these calls. This was Jane doing a job on her own. Mr. Fenny did derive some benefit in the sense that when she would come home, she shared the money with Mr. Fenny. You know, people share in the profits of their income. In fact, it was pointed out at one point she did, in fact, during the course of the relationship, tail off from and almost completely stopped the prostitution. And that wasn't because Mr. Fenny, well, it wasn't, she stopped because Mr. Fenny wanted her to stop. She was torn up inside with the fact that it hurt Jeremy that she went out on these calls, that it would, as it would with anyone in a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship. It made him sad. It made him depressed that she would go out and have sex with men for money. When it came to the video which was sent to Jane's baby daddy, it was described by the defense as follows. They agree to this sex video. Now, maybe it's not Jane's idea, but she engaged in this sex video. There's sort of a taunting nature. That is definitely being sent as a way of Mr. Fenny to express his displeasure, to show off what is happening between him and Jane. But at no point does it involve her saying no. There is not some kind of striking of her or anything to indicate that the sex is not consensual. And then, also for it to be first degree, one thing that is not in the video that the state indicates Jane testified to is that there was a presence of a deadly weapon somewhere off camera, somewhere which we don't see. To me, the video appears to be a consensual sex act. So the question comes down to why Jane would say all these things that we heard about in court if they weren't true. And there's a few different reasons she gave. She said that she had time away from them. It became more and more difficult to talk with Mr. Fenny because the state is taking efforts to make sure that didn't happen in violation of the no contact order. She came to be in legal peril herself. She had drugs on her when she got arrested November 22nd of 2016. She caught charges for witness tampering. And although she downplays this as a reason why she's doing this, she was offered a benefit to her. If you enter this human trafficking diversion, which we heard about, about what the benefits to her were and the benefits to her were, if you do, this case will go away against you if you do certain things like get clean, go to treatment, check in with us. Leave your lifestyle of drugs and prostitution and help us testify, if necessary, against Jeremy Finney. The defense arguments were hard for me to read and listen to. Granted, the defense did not have much to work with, and the disoriented delivery seems to highlight that. In summary, 
The defense claims that Jane always did what she wanted to do when she wanted to do it without repercussions, whether it be to engage in prostitution, leave Fenny, get medical care, or use drugs. He had no influence or power over her. But rather, he was worried about her. He did not want her to engage in prostitution. That she and Fenny had a caring, loving relationship. That at the time of her arrest and trial, Jane lied about Fenny. The beatings, the rapes, the prostitution in order to protect herself. That Fenny is just a regular guy with a few problems, not a monster at all. Here is the final rebuttal in full made by Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Emily Goodell. In the defendant's world, sex is about power. That's the function it played in the relationship between him and Jane. It was used as a tool, and it was used as a weapon. Defense wants you to believe that this was a loving relationship and that everything that happened was consensual. Even when the sex was consensual, the defendant was using it to manipulate Jane, sometimes no doubt to make her think that he really loved her, but more often to teach her her place. The true nature of the relationship in the defendant's mind and what he led Jane to believe are like night and day. Look at the dynamics of the sex you heard about in this case, the sex at the Forest Park incident. Well, first the defendant, throughout the course of their relationship, is having sex with all different women, whoever he wants to, whenever he wants to, sometimes requiring Jane to participate in it, when it is clear from her journal, her text to the defendant, the recorded calls that we have access to, all she wanted was for her just to be enough. Jane's journal said that while he was having sex with everyone else, he was only interested in oral sex from her. That wasn't for her gratification. That was so that she knew that he could still have his way with her. The sex act at the day's inn after Jane texted her friend, he had just put a gun to her head and threatened to kill her. That was over an incident where he found out she was sending a message saying that she was blowing him off. That was the defendant showing her that he was in power when it appeared she thought she had some control about the relationship. The sex that he taped and sent to her baby daddy, that wasn't for her gratification. That wasn't a fun thing that they did, make a sex tape together. You could read it on her face. You could read it from the way she tried to look away from the camera, from the things that he said. Put it in your mouth. Put it in your butt. Put it in your pussy. Quit playing. Say his name, bitch. Those are orders. That is humiliation. That is punishment. That is the defendant demonstrating the absolute control he had over her against her will because of the threats and the force that he constantly subjected her to. Now, the defense suggests this isn't what you would expect to see in a rape video in the sense that you don't see the actual forcible compulsion. But it is exactly what you would expect to see on a rape video because the defendant produced and directed this film for production. He knew he was going to send it off to her baby daddy. He controlled when the camera was on, when it was off, what angle it was pointing at, whether or not it was going to show the gun sitting right next to him on the bed. He is not going to put that in the film because he knows he is sending it out. Besides Jane's context that she gives about what was really happening that night, we also have context from her baby daddy's testimony. Quote, I am going to fuck you in the ass like I fucked Jane. End quote. Her baby daddy was scared for her. That comparison is an admission. The defendant knew Jane didn't consent, just like he knew her baby daddy wasn't going to consent. The sex Jane was forced to have with other people to support the defendant, his shoe obsession, his drug habit, his travel dreams, defense argues that she did it on her own, that it was never against her will. 
The jury instructions don't ask you to find that she'd never done it before, or that he made the posts, or that none of the money went to support her needs. The question is whether the defendant recruited her when he told her if she did it for him, he could leave the other woman, and profited from her when she did do that, knowing that he would use his power and force to take away her ability to stop, to say no more, and not get hurt for doing so. It's clear that this was the defendant's plan all along. He's proud of it. He rapped about it. He got his job description tattooed across his chest. The man never worked another job. Jane was his cash crop. Is it reasonable to believe, after hearing all the testimony, that this person that inflicts corporal punishment every time his ego is damaged, one of his proverbs is tested, or whenever Jane even looks another man in the eye, is it reasonable to believe that he didn't use force to keep that crop producing for him? That is not reasonable doubt. The sex that the defendant had with Kelly, that wasn't sex that she made up. That wasn't consensual sex. That was sex that deeply, deeply violated her. The defendant had a gun, and she knew that he was willing to use it. That was the defendant sending a message to get back at Cornegay for putting him in a bad situation with bad people. That was him displaying a show of power. Kelly didn't know that she would become a victim in the argument between Cornegay and Fenny over the robbery. She knew that the defendant had her phone and was going to try and get a hold of Cornegay with her phone. You heard her testify about that day. She said a friend came to pick her up at Safeway, and she didn't know why this friend was there, that Cornegay told her not to go home. But after a couple of days, she wanted some clothes, so she went back. There were people there. She picked up her clothes. Things were okay. She got through that testimony just fine. But when she was asked, what happened the second time you went back to that house? Her demeanor, her body language, her expression, her ability to even communicate changed. She didn't go to that house with the idea about what the defendant was going to do to her. She told you that he had used that opportunity, her vulnerability, and being alone, and he forced her to take off her clothes, and he penetrated her. And the defense argues there is no evidence of that. That is because the defendant controlled the realm of evidence. He chose the circumstances. He did it when no one else was there. He did it to someone that he knew wouldn't report because she didn't report the last time he had a gun pointed to her head. Why would Kelly make up that story? It didn't gain her anything. It caused friction in her relationship with Jane such to the extent that she felt like she had to take it back. It clearly wasn't something that she wanted to discuss, and she was never in any jeopardy of getting any charges, so why make it up? She has no discernible reason to lie. With regard to the pentorch rape, I am not going to go over that extensively. The defense challenges whether it happened in the first place, despite a doctor, Jane, Kelly, and another friend all testifying about these injuries. Co-counsel covered penetration pretty clearly. There was a diagram. Jane said that she, her sexual organs were penetrated, and there were scars on the inside of her vulva. The doctor said that those would have healed pretty quickly. More quickly, the closer they were to her vagina, but that she could still see evidence of scars inside the vulva. He can't possibly argue that that was consensual, even though she sat there on the ottoman while he burned her ten times. In the situation they were in, Jane and Kelly both did what they had to do to survive. Let us never mistake that for consent. Let us never mistake the things that a person does to cope in a situation that seems unlivable for consent. Chains are not all that bind. Fear can be just as powerful. The defendant made sure to instill mortal fear. 
Jane testified that she knew from the date of the Forest Park incident that this man would control how long she would live. The defendant got even closer to taking her life on October 6th. Now, the defense doesn't believe that the evidence shows intent to kill. It is true. Intent is a tricky thing. It's contained inside someone's mind. If they don't tell you what they're thinking, how do you know what they're thinking? You have to discern this from the circumstantial evidence and from the context in which the acts took place. The defendant was angrier than he had ever been because he perceived a more egregious rule violation than he had ever caught Jane in before. He told her he was going to kill her. He picked up a gun, he pressed it against her head, and he pulled the trigger. What is the logical conclusion about a person's intent when they take those actions? There is no evidence to contradict the obvious conclusion that he meant to kill her. No other explanation as to how a hole the same size of the bullet went through the door at an angle consistent with the narrative that Jane gave. And it is true, Jane gave the story later, months later. But it wasn't after she went back to the house and saw the bullet hole. It was after she had been clean and she had been to therapy and she built some trust in her own memories and in the people she was disclosing to. Jane could have moved at the last second or the defendant have changed his mind. If you believe the defendant changed his mind right before pulling that trigger, that does not make the defendant not guilty. That makes the defendant guilty of taking a substantial step, guilty of attempted murder. Similar with all the acts, if you believe the defendant changed his mind or that Jane's submission changed his mind about what he was ready to do during any of these incidents, that does not mean that he did not have the intent to complete the crime, to inflict the great bodily harm when he picked up the weapon, when he pointed the weapon, when he loaded the weapon, when he drew back his arm with the pole or the machete, or when he lit that blowtorch. Maybe you think it is all a bit oversold. Defense suggests this is all just a narrative. This was a loving relationship. Maybe you believe some of the defendant's claim to love Jane, some of his tears, some of the expressions of regret, and the phone calls or letters. You might be entertained by songs, maybe even find him personable. Remember that. That is an important part of the game, too. It's a part of the power cycle, and Jane definitely believed it at the time. The defendant read her journal. There is no doubt she was convinced at the time that they were in love, despite some months that were hard as hell. Defense alluded to the question, does it seem reasonable that a person would stay if all of this was really going on? Well, she did stay. There is physical evidence that, direct of multiple severe injuries that her body suffered. You heard from five different doctors that told you throughout the course of 2016, they saw her for a broken rib, a bone deep cut, lacerations requiring stitches, a serious burn, cut on her ankle, and burns to her vagina. She was being injured, and unless you believe she burned her own vagina, the only person in a crash with a go-kart that no one saw, and is also the most accident-prone person in the world, you know somebody was doing this to her and the disputable evidence shows that she stayed with that someone. And in this huge packet of instructions, there are several questions that you won't find and you won't be asked to answer. Could Jane have actually left and not come back despite what she thought? Why did she stay in contact with the defendant after the arrest? Why did Jane stay? They are not in that packet because they don't matter. There are a lot of reasons offered throughout the trial. Emotional dependence, drug dependence, 
psychological manipulations, trauma bonding, fear of retribution against herself or others that she cared about, distrust in the system's ability to help her. But frankly, it doesn't matter which or if you buy any of those at all. You might think she made terrible decisions. You might not be able to fathom staying in a situation like that. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you think she brought it upon herself, or even if you think she deserved it like he thought. Your job is not to judge Jane's past decisions. It is also not your job to compromise. There are 45 counts here. The evidence supports all 45 counts here. This is not a time for you to split the baby. Let your sympathy give some to the state, some to defense. Work out some deals between yourself about finding a resolution on one and giving up another one. That is not your job. You must return a verdict of guilty for every count and special verdict that you believe the evidence supports unanimously beyond reasonable doubt. It is not your job to speculate about why charges are what they are, why there are two charges for some acts, why there are no charges for some acts, why some are only assault two when you think that maybe they fit assault one, why some special allegations are on some counts and not others. It is not your job to speculate about those things. It is not your job to speculate about what additional evidence could have made the case stronger, what things were referenced in opening statements that you didn't hear about, what things were objected to, what things could have made the investigation better. The question you are here to answer is whether what you do have is enough. And let's be clear, this is all you are going to get. You have a question form back there but you can't ask to see extra pieces of evidence. You can't ask to clarify what you think a witness said. What goes into the evidence room with you, your notes and your collective memory is all you have. Your job is to question whether the testimony Jane gave, testimony Kelly gave, all of the corroborating evidence leaves you with an abiding belief in the truth of the charges. And it is the same burden with record to the special verdict, the special allegations. And I'm going to touch on those for a minute because they are fairly straightforward. The DV aggravator. Was this part of an ongoing pattern of psychological, physical, or sexual abuse that occurred over multiple incidents over a prolonged period? That is abundantly clear. Deliberate cruelty applies to some of the counts. These are for the times that he pushed the machete into her after he had already burned her ankle. Times that he added humiliation, like pouring urine on her or having sex upstairs with another person while she is in the freezing cold being made to listen. Times that he was heating the torch over and over and over, burning her over and over and over deliberately. You also see an allegation of lack of remorse. Don't be fooled by his letters that he sent her when he was already in jail, when he was in a vulnerable position. And he went back to that phase in his power cycle where he was trying to win her over again. Don't be fooled by his I'm sorry's in the jail and his suicide threat. This is a man who bends other people to his will, who takes what he wants when he wants, whose life is about himself. He was never going to take his own life, but he was going to use that threat against Jane. His lack of remorse is evidenced by the fact that he tells her repeatedly, this is all your fault. Why did you make me do this? He sends a video of his acts out, and he escalates his assaults, getting worse and worse and worse in some incidences. It took a lot of strength for Kelly and Jane to testify for you. They told you 
about their most personal, most humiliating, most intimate secrets, things they didn't tell their closest friends or family. The defendant didn't know those women had that strength. He never thought they would testify because he had scared them to death. Now the defense asks you to do what the defendant worked so hard to make Jane believe what happened. Disregard her. Don't believe her. Blame her. Even if you believe the defense argument that she had a motive to lie or that therapy brainwashed her, I submit to you there is just too much detail. No person could possibly make up that much detail. Her stories are consistent. They are consistent as she tells them. They are consistent with details that we get from external witnesses. They are consistent with the other pieces of evidence that were collected. When Jane was lying about what happened, she couldn't keep her story straight. She told her mom a car accident. She told others a go-kart accident. Her injuries weren't consistent with either. The pieces didn't fit. The testimony she gave you under oath was consistent. It was consistent with what she told too many other people. Other witnesses at the time that it happened, witnesses she hasn't seen for a year. It is consistent with phone records, text messages, journal entries, photographs, descriptions of physical items that she hasn't seen in over a year, consistent with evidence of the hole in the house and the receipt of the days in. There is just too much detail to make up. Defense counsel told you in opening statement that the state was trying to paint the defendant as a monster. Now, we all know monsters are not real, but what the defendant did to the victims in this case was very real. Ladies and gentlemen, you have more than enough evidence to satisfy the elements of each of the crimes charged as well as the special verdicts. At this time, I ask you to return verdicts of guilty to special allegations in the affirmative to all counts. Thank you. Wow, that gave me goosebumps. The verdict is in. The jury deliberated for two days before finding Fenny guilty on 44 of the 45 charges. The only charge he was not found guilty on was the attempted murder charge. This was downgraded to first-degree assault. According to the jury foreman, my sister, the verdict was a definite, unanimous verdict. Not one person thought he wasn't guilty. Christian Vossler of the Kitsap Sun reported this exchange from the courtroom, the woman being Jane. Quote, The violence that was inflicted on the victims in this case is really unimaginable, Deputy Prosecutor Corinne Schnepp said. In a statement that she read, the woman asked Fanny to step into her shoes, recounting many of the abuses that she went through in detail. The tortures left her with numerous scars on her body and severe mental and emotional trauma. To this day, I apologize when dropping something, she said. The woman called Fenny the most evil and twisted person I have ever met and told him that he had taken away her voice and purpose in life. At the sentencing phase of the trial, Judge Dalton stated, For the record, Ms. Schnempf, in terms of exceptional sentence here, the jury has spoken repeatedly. Special verdict after special verdict after special verdict. He was a rapid recidivator. I looked at his criminal history. He, of the 15 years between the age of 15 and 30, he was given sentences totaling 13 years, just shy of 13 years. He would get the benefit of good time credit and get out early and reoffend. All of his felony offenses have to do with some degree of disregard for the rights of others. The first two, the attempted robberies, section two, the residential burglaries, and then the assault, 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 etc. 
For those reasons, it is important to honor the jury's verdicts as well as to recognize Mr. Fenny's criminal history and his recidivism rate, so I award an exceptional sentence accordingly. End quote. Christian Vossler of the Kitsap Sun also reported this exchange between Fenny and Judge Dalton. Quote, Before handing down the sentence, Judge Dalton told Fenny he was fortunate to live in a country with due process. Fenny interrupted her, asking the judge to skip to the sentencing. He said, The reality is, you can give me a thousand years right now. That's not going to change nothing. Fenny said, You're correct, Judge Dalton said. All right, so let's get on with it, Fenny said. End quote. The jury foreman stated that the heavy security was visible throughout the trial. After the verdict was delivered, jurors were offered escorts to their vehicles in case they were feeling uncomfortable about going out alone to their car. They were also offered counseling, given that the crime scene photos and much of the evidence they heard and saw was very graphic and violent. Andrew Binion in the Coloradan reported the following, quote, Multiple armed officers posted in and around the courtroom during the trial, which saw Fenny appear in court with his head shaved, exposing a tattoo on the side of his scalp facing jurors that said, Only God can judge me. End quote. In fact, it was a jury of 12 who judged him guilty, not God. At the age of 30, Fenny was sentenced by Judge Dalton to 340 years in prison. He will remain incarcerated for the rest of his life. And with that, court is adjourned. Thank you for joining me on my podcasting debut. I hope you'll join me again on Crime Happens.